The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. So glad to have you with us today. We are going to have a great time, as always. Don't we always show you a great time on Go Green Radio? Yes, we do. Um, I have a guest today that is really, I think he's going to be one of my BFFs on this show because he's such a sport. His name is Josiah Kane, and I just talked to him yesterday, and I talked him into a half-hour segment, and then I sent him some information about the show, and he's coming on for the entire hour. It was the email version of Pretty Please with sugar on top, and he said all right. And so we are very excited to introduce to you our Go Green Radio listeners. Uh, Josiah, he he has done some really amazing work, and we're going to get into a lot of the particulars, but he is a landscape architect who is going to talk to us about how to create beautiful landscape, gardens that are gorgeous, and still not use too much of one of our world's most precious resources, and that's water. Now, a lot of you know that I live in California, and I've said many times on Go Green Radio that California is in its third year of drought. It's getting serious. But you know what? If you look at a rainfall map of the United States, there are a lot of areas in the U.S., and they're not just in the West. There's several areas on the East Coast, uh, down in Texas, and around the U.S., that are under normal rainfall for this time of the year. June was pretty dry in a lot of areas of the U.S. So when we talk about conserving water, it's not just something that's confined to the concerns of people who live in western states, Arizona, California, New Mexico. This is something that's becoming more and more of an issue for people all over the United States. Now, Josiah, as I mentioned, is a landscape architect with design ecology. And I don't want you to close this web browser. I would like for you to open a new tab, a new uh, web browser, and check out his website while we talk to him today. It's www.designecology.com. Check it out as we go along. And if you have any questions for me or for Josiah, I don't want you to be shy. Sometimes you guys are great at uh, sending me IMs, sending me emails um, before and after the show. But don't be shy. Go ahead and call in if you have a question. Here's the number, 866-472-5788. Well, without further ado, welcome to Go Green Radio, Josiah. We're so glad to have you. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Well, I found you in the June issue of Sunset Magazine, which I'm a huge fan of Sunset Magazine, and they had a special report in the June issue that was talking about how to kick the water habit in 12 easy steps, and you were featured in that. And I was particularly interested in what you had to say about gray water. For our listeners who might not be familiar with what gray water is, can you help explain that term? Well, sure. There's an easy sort of limerick for it, which is everything but the kitchen sink. Um, essentially, 
All of the wastewater that comes out of your house that doesn't come from the kitchen sink or a toilet. And the reason for that is really pathogens. Those are the two places, because of eggs and salmonella and meat preparation and things like that, that pathogens are found in the home. So gray water is like the shower, um, what else, the, where we wash our hands? Yeah, laundry, uh, shower, kitchen sinks, uh, really those are the primary sources for gray water. Mm-hmm. And, and how are people capturing gray water to irrigate their landscape? Um, I'm thinking of, at first, a home application, but maybe then we can go to maybe a commercial building kind of application. How, how do you capture that gray water? Well, I mean, there's a variety of ways to do it. Many people may be familiar with, in California, when we've had droughts at times, people are encouraged to take water from their bathtub with five-gallon buckets, for example. But generally speaking, um, there are systems that automatically recover the water through the drainage system that you use anyway, for example, to drain in your shower. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be anywhere from very simple uh, basically diversion systems that allow water to flow out through gravity mm-hmm. um, to very sophisticated filtered systems with pumps and, and pressure-related irrigation systems. They tend to be much more sophisticated in the commercial applications, as you might imagine. I'm sure. Um, now, if you are just a regular homeowner and you say, hey, this sounds like a great idea, I'd like to have a gray water system in my house, who do you call? I mean, does, does the everyday plumber know how to do this? Um, no. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. The everyday plumber knows how to do it uh, from the standpoint of having the skills, um, but generally hasn't done it before, and most plumbers, I would say, shy away from it. Um, there's, you know, a variety and increasingly uh, a number of local providers who do advertise, and they range from plumbers to landscape contractors generally. Ah, I see. So um, for the consumer across the U.S., different states, different locations, this may be something that uh, kind of like green building 10 years ago. A lot of folks that we've talked to on Go Green Radio were um, trying to retrofit or construct their new homes using green materials, and 10 years ago, boy, you were kind of, you had to be a do-it-yourselfer. You almost had to be your own general contractor if you wanted to find the right materials, the right caulk, the right flooring, and you had to kind of educate yourself in order to educate the people who were going to be working on your home. Is it kind of that way right now with gray water systems? Yeah, I would I would say it's fair to say that. Um, really, I would look at it as an, an aspect of green building that has been slow to catch up with what we ordinarily think about, which is sort of where we source our products. Mm-hmm. The way we manage our water is really a major issue that increasingly is sort of reaching the awareness of, of the Americans, especially on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, it's something that's ill-defined and um, sort of new territory for most people, both professionals and clients. Well, you mentioned something really, really interesting in the article in Sunset Magazine. And again, folks, that was the June edition. You can find the article on the Sunset website at sunset.com. You said that water policy surrounding gray water varies widely from state to state. Can you give us some examples of a few states' policies and talk about how they differ from one another? I think that's really interesting. 
Well, sure. I mean, many states don't allow gray water. Um, some states, like Arizona and New Mexico, are very lenient and in some cases don't even require a permit. Um, California is is a state where we have many different policies around the state. Um, we do have a statewide policy since 1994 that allows gray water as part of the Uniform Building Code. It's actually an addendum to the Plumbing Code. Uh-huh. Um, but it's estimated that there are 1.7 million gray water systems in California residentially, and only 200 of those have permits. So that helps underscore the problem that they've had trying to provide really a unified permit solution over the last 14 or 15 years in the state of California. How do you account for the differences between states' policies? Like where there are states that are kind of like, hey, do whatever you want, and some states that, you know, don't even allow it. What's the mindset or what's the thinking behind those various policies? I mean, when you have a state where public policymakers are saying, no way, no gray water, and then you have a state where public policymakers are saying, hey, do whatever you want to, what what do they think they know or what do they know about gray water systems that causes that type of public policy? Well, I think many states don't have the same need that we do on the West Coast um, because of our climate pattern. You mm-hmm. can go seven or eight months with no rain whatsoever, which makes that wastewater very valuable, whereas on the East Coast, really most places east of the Rockies see their precipitation evenly throughout the year. So you don't have the same extremes as far as the landscape drying out and the reservoirs drying out. So certainly west of the Rockies, you see more attention paid to it. But even then, um, I think really the primary concerns are around public health and safety. Um, Many jurisdictions really consider all wastewater to be sewage, and um, I think we're all familiar with the basic sort of phobias we have around really dealing with our wastewater. So, you know, many policymakers prefer not to sort of open that box of, you know, what is, you know, dangerous wastewater versus not dangerous wastewater, and then really how do we deal with treatment, especially on site. I mean, as you know, um, around the world, really, many diseases can be can be transported through water, and unhealthy water has been a source of disease for the eons. So mm-hmm. it's really about trying to define some simple solutions that protect the public while still allowing the public to really participate and take personal responsibility for the water issues we have. Well, you mentioned in the Sunset article that we already know everything we need to know in order to put gray water systems into into place, and we're kind of in the dark ages. What do policymakers need to know about gray water in order to make informed decisions? I mean, as an expert, if you were able to sit down and talk with lawmakers and with governors, what would you recommend to them for a sound gray water policy? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that they really need to start with a solution that everyone can agree to rather than... Um, try to provide some compromise between those, generally speaking, regulators, uh, inspectors, people like that, um, who have strong concerns and, you know, some of the more informed 
of the public who think that they really know everything they need to know to manage it themselves with no oversight. And um, I have found that both ends of that spectrum provide problems. So Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is, you know, in places where they really just say, okay, you don't really need much of a permit or formal process to do a system like this, um, those tend not to get approved because the regulators are nervous that they're going to be liable for what they don't really know what's going to happen. On the other end of the spectrum, um, if the code is so restrictive that it's either expensive or impossible to meet meet the code, you don't get anything any progress either. So really what's needed is sort of a solution that is acceptable to the regulators but still feasible from a client standpoint. And those solutions absolutely exist, um, and it's just a matter of I think there's a huge knowledge gap in the policy and decision-making world about water management and what it takes to, to, for a safe system to be designed. Well, who is going to fill that knowledge gap? I mean, where do we find the, the person or the group of people who will come in and give a seminar to lawmakers and policy regulators? Actually, let's think about that over a commercial break, and uh, we'll be back with more Go Green Radio in just a moment with Josiah Kane of Design Ecology. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this commercial break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Now, Mrs. Johnson, before we close on your mortgage loan, I want to make sure you remember Mike. Hi. You can trust me. I'm African-American, just like you. So here's the low monthly payments and interest rates we promised, and here's where they triple. The rest of this stuff is just here to make sure that we get your house when you can't pay us back. What a lovely house. Predatory lenders are never this easy to spot. Call us at 866-222-FAIR and protect yourself with the facts. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance and the Ad Council. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST 
4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Some of you have been sending me some great emails on gogreenradio at gmail.com, but I would love for you to call in. Don't be shy. Here's the number, 1-866-472-5788. Today our guest is Josiah Kane. He's a partner with the firm Design Ecology. Don't close the web browser you're listening on. Open up a new web browser and check out his website at www.designecology.com. Josiah, thanks again for joining us on Go Green Radio. Well, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Well, we were talking about gray water in the last segment, which was really fascinating to me. I think this is kind of a, a new concept for a lot of us. Um, even those of us who've been in the environmental industry a while, um, gray water systems hopefully will become more prevalent in you know the coming years. But at the moment, um, it, it seems like it's kind of difficult to do. I mean, I could you know leave the bath water in my bathtub, take a five gallon bucket, and go water my outside plants with it. But that's not very easy. Is there something coming down the pike? soon, uh, where I could go to Home Depot or I could call somebody up and say, you know, I want gray, a gray water system. Can you do it? Is that coming? Is it going to be easier? Well, I'm sure that it is. Um, there are a couple of different things developing, and I have to say that it um, is kind of developing slowly because there are several different elements that are developing. Um, certainly, the codes are making it easier, and California does have a new code that is it may even be expedited for August 4th, I'm told, although certainly January 1st we'll, we'll see a new code in California that's going to make a lot more sense. Um, and other states are looking that way too. So from a regulatory standpoint, um, it will get easier. And <clears throat> conventionally, you would need to hire a civil engineer or other professional to really design a system that will properly filter and meet the code and be compatible with your irrigation. There are products, primarily from outside the country that are starting to show up um, in the U.S. Um, there's a German system. There are a couple of Australian systems. Um, and a new system that I just saw that I'm probably going to try out that's from uh, Vietnam, actually. And wow. these are essentially products. So they're more or less a box that you can buy. Uh-huh. And you plumb your fixtures to go into the box. And the box filters the water and conditions it. 
and actually pressurizes it in most cases um, for your irrigation system. So it's sort of a pipe in and a pipe out. It can be a little confusing from the standpoint of UL standards and things like that, and that can be very expensive and time-consuming. So it may not be as simple as just importing a product, Mm -hmm. Um, but these products do exist, and we are seeing them entering the U.S. market, and I think that over the next few years, we probably will see um, particular package systems starting to be sold off the shelf. Wow, that's exciting. Now, when you say that these products treat the water... What are they treating it for, and, and what's the, the final product? I mean, like, for instance, you know, I know a lot of people are really careful about what kind of chemicals they put on their plants and whatnot, and they might be thinking, ooh, you know, I'm not sure that my bath water, you know, the soap or detergent in there is going to be okay for my plants. What, what needs to come out of gray water before it goes into your irrigation system? Well, that's an interesting and Potentially complicated question, unfortunately, which is part of the reason um, there's so much confusion around gray water. And what I mean by that is it depends on your local codes, Mm -hmm. um, and it also depends on how you intend to use that water. Um, From my standpoint, the most efficient way to reuse the water is with a drip system. As we know, drip irrigation is really the most efficient way to, to irrigate. Right. And it's also the most efficient way to conserve a water resource. So to use drip irrigation, you need fairly clean water. So generally speaking, what these systems would be doing is removing solids um, and then to some extent reducing uh, any kind of nutrient loads that are in there, like phosphorus from soap, for example. Uh-huh. Um, and then I think it's actually very important to reduce or really to eliminate pathogens. And that's actually very easy to do with an ultraviolet light, so we're not introducing chemicals, chlorine, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultraviolet light is approved in the state of California and most states to kill pathogens, which means no disease can be, you know, transferred through that water. So really if you take out the the solids and then you take out the pathogens, by and large, that's what you're doing. That's so interesting. Boy, I I really hope that over time we can have you come back on and keep us updated um, on how, you know, this this gray water concept is evolving because it really does sound like there's a ton of potential with gray water systems to conserve a lot of water that otherwise just goes right into the sewer. So um, that's definitely something that we need to follow. Now, those of us who live in the West, and a lot of people I'm finding in the Southeast as well, are facing water restrictions and even higher water rates due to shortages. In fact, I know that a lot of Go Green Radio listeners are probably tired of hearing me talk about how my home state of California is in its third year of drought. I talk about it on pretty much every show, but that's important. And so, you know, we're kind of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to water issues uh, for the rest of the nation in many respects. Um, when you were featured in Sunset Magazine, they ask you if water is too cheap in the West. And I, I'm assuming that the reason they ask you that question is because they figured, well, if water's more expensive, people will use less. Um, you gave a really thoughtful and thought-provoking answer to that question. Would you answer that question for Go Green Radio listeners? Is water too cheap in the West? Well, it is. In a, in a, I guess I could take a step back and say that my relationship to Sunset really started when they asked me to come and give a talk for their annual water symposium, which is really a gathering of water agencies 
uh, west of the Rockies. Mm-hmm. So these are the big agencies who are responsible for managing our water supply. Uh-huh. And they essentially have not been allowed to raise their rates and can't control water use because of that and have no idea where they're going to get the water. And wow. to me, that was the most astonishing thing that I learned there. And, you know, we'll talk about the tier systems, but actually what I would say is that the amount of water that we all need to survive for your base, basic drinking, cooking, bathing, um, needs to be cheap, should be cheap, should be as close to free as we can make it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also do spend nationwide 25% or maybe at least 20% of our energy moving water around, treating it, and conditioning it. And so that gives you some idea of how much of our efforts and resources are going into uh, providing that water. And w- if you're going to waste water, then we really need to be paying for that. That's a fascinating number. 25% of our nation's energy supply is used to treat water. Now, here's, you know, in, in my little green world, here's what that translates to me. We know that depending on where you live, 70 to 80% of our energy or electricity comes from fossil fuel-fired plants, which we know pollute the air. I mean, these are coal plants, what have you. Even with clean coal technology, we're talking about, you know, a lot of air pollution when we consume a lot of energy. So basically what you're saying is if we were to consume less water, we would consume less energy and maybe not belch so much air pollution out into our you know, our air with these fossil fuel fire electricity plants. Absolutely. And not only, I mean, I would go beyond that and I would say that conserving water is probably the easiest and most efficient way to conserve energy that we have before us today because we've already put so much effort into energy conservation. And so it gets more and more difficult to conserve that energy. And such a large amount of of our energy is associated with water. So Certainly, conserving water is a wonderful way to save energy. We've had some great guests on Go Green Radio, Josiah, but I I am absolutely certain you are the first one to make that connection between conserving water and conserving energy. That's a a really big concept. Um, Thank you for sharing that with us. Now, let's go back to the tiered system for water rates because... Until I read the Sunset Magazine article, I didn't know that there were different tiers to our water usage and hence our water rates. Can you explain that to us? Sure. Not all agencies do this, um, but certainly where I am in Marin County and many other areas, um, there's a tier one that is very, very cheap, and that is intended to be about the average amount of water that, uh, that a household would need. Now, there are different ways of making the tiers go up, but generally speaking, if you exceed that amount, you pay double the cost per unit of water for the next tier, so the next amount of water that you use. And that can double again and double again up to up to tier four, like we have here. Mm-hmm. However, water is so incredibly cheap, you know, pennies for a 7.48-gallon uh, unit. Mm-hmm. And that, what that is is that's a, a cubic foot of water. Mm-hmm. Um, that even doubling it or even doubling it three or four times is not expensive enough to encourage, for example, a homeowner with a large estate garden mm-hmm. 
to collect their own water and, and put in a gray water system. It, it remains cheaper to buy that expensive water. Wow. What do you recommend? Well, I re- what I've recommended consistently is that if the agencies want to conserve water and want personal responsibility to be part of the equation, um, that Tier 4, meaning if you're really using, you know, not just that Tier 1 water that everyone agrees should be really cheap and not just Tier 2 or two, Tier 3, but all the way up into Tier 4 water, which means, you know, you're using substantially more water than your neighbors, um, that should be so expensive that it becomes cheaper to collect rainwater and or install a gray water system for those unpotable water uses. That's an interesting concept, and it also raises some interesting questions about how that kind of public policy would be formed. I want to ask you some questions about that when we come back, Josiah, because that's really piqued my interest. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio in just a couple of minutes. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. We have a great guest today. I'm just blown away by the information that we're getting from Josiah Kane. Um, Really, really important stuff. And I know that so oftentimes it's very, very easy to turn on the tap, get a drink of water, and not think about where that water comes from or think about, 
you know, that water being scarce. Go out in the backyard, water your plants until there's puddles on the ground and not think twice about it. Um, but the fact is, for a lot of us, not just in western states, but in a variety of states across the U.S. where waterfall has been quite a bit less than usual, we are looking at some water shortages. And a lot of us, you know, we, we have a good deal of our lives built around the way we use water. And it certainly isn't the way people who have to carry a big bucket of water on their head for a mile uh, treat their water. We, we treat it differently. And so we're talking to Josiah Kane, who is a partner at Design Ecology. You can check out his website at www.designecology.com. We're talking about ways that we can conserve water around our house and our business buildings, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about schools in just a minute, minute, but we're talking about how to conserve this precious resource of water and still have a great life. It's absolutely possible. Um, A lot of the things that we do with water, we could do with less water, and we're talking about a variety of ways. Uh, We talked about gray water systems and and water pricing um, in order to create a culture of conservation when it comes to water. Now, sometimes the most interesting conversations on Go Green Radio happen in between segments. They happen while we're on commercial break. And I don't want to leave you guys out because Josiah told me something that blew my mind. It's kind of one of those uh, vicious circle conundrum situations that will make your head hurt, but it's really important information for you to know. Josiah, we talked in the last segment about how 25% of our nation's energy supply goes to treating and pumping and moving fresh water. But you told me something really interesting during the commercial break about fresh water and power plants. Lay it on us. Tell everybody. Well, I came across a statistic recently that shows 30% of the fresh water we draw goes to power plants, mostly for cooling. And so you have this cycle of using energy to, to move and treat and filter water, um, but that, that energy required is in itself using a ton of fresh water. And so not only are we conserving energy when we conserve water, but we're conserving water when we conserve water. <laughs> that's that amazing. I mean, that, that's something that I haven't heard anywhere else. It's so... Simple and yet so profound. And this link between sometimes because of where we get our information about natural resources and the environment, oftentimes it comes from either uh, nonprofit organizations or government agencies who kind of have a pigeonhole perspective. Like, for instance, you know, the, a water agency is going to talk about water. And, you know, the public utilities... Um, and the energy commissions are going to talk about energy. But breaking down those silos and talking about the interrelationship between water and energy is so interesting and so fresh. I think it's really important for people to understand how very married these systems are. So thanks for sharing that with us, Josiah. Um, Absolutely. You know, I spend a lot of my time with everyday moms. We're soccer moms, hockey moms, what have you. And we're just, we're working and we're trying to raise our families. And many of us, well, I know who my state assembly person is because I ran against her, but a lot of us don't know even who our state assembly person is, let alone who sits on their local water board. If we begin to see water situations and water pricing and rationing, like what they're experiencing, say, in Perth, Australia, I mean, you know, California is kind of the canary in the coal mine for the U.S. on these types of issues. I think that average citizens are going to become more attentive to their water 
regulatory agencies and who's sitting on their water board. But in the meantime, between that and, and today, tell us what kinds of decisions our local water boards are making when it comes to these various tiers, like Tier 1 through Tier 4 water rates. Um, what should everyday citizens know about this kind of stuff? What should we be paying attention to as we pick up our local newspaper and read about what our local water agencies are doing? Well, certainly you should know that they're all, at least in the West and really around the country, working very hard to try to solve water shortage issues. And that is generally kept out of the public eye, mostly because we don't really want to know, by and large. We just want the water to, have to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just had a little bit of a summit here in the Bay Area about this. And one thing that I think is important to watch is really what your district is talking about when they talk about aggressive conservation and things of this nature. Um, It's been my experience that they will talk mostly about fixtures and about efficiency on the consumption side, Um, but they really won't give much more than lip service to what I consider to be on-site water resources, things like gray water and rainwater harvesting. Um, And there are multiple reasons for that, but I think as citizens we definitely can push our districts to be more aggressive when considering how we can manage water on our sites better with regard to those things. It seems to run sort of parallel to this feeling that some people have that, you know, they want to put solar panels on their roof and and go off the grid. They want to be self-sustaining when it comes to energy. It sounds kind of like the same spirit of independence when we're talking about people who want to institute gray water systems or rainwater harvesting. Yeah, uh, independence is an interesting word for that. I mean, uh, certainly we see a range, and many people want to be water independent. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a certain irony that we're really focused on energy, but the truth is, you know, we can live without energy for many days. (laughs) Yeah. But we can't live without water um, for long at all, and we're less focused on having that particular resource um, secure. That is a really interesting point, Josiah, because you're right. I mean, um, you know, in the newspaper when they talk about uh, even the the current administration's focus on, you know, environmental issues, we hear a couple things. We hear smart grid and renewable energy, and then we hear cap and trade. But (laughs) like you said, you know, if we had to light a candle and, you know, eat pork and beans out of a can, we could live. We can't live without water. It seems like the hierarchy of, of needs might be askew a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think we mostly consider in this culture water to be sort of like air. It's expected that, it'll, that it will be there, and um, it's not something that we expect to have to think about. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, in your experience, I want to I get to some of the cool projects that you've worked on as a landscape architect um, you've really done some neat work, and you've done some projects that I think are truly noteworthy. Talk to our Go Green Radio listeners about what you do, uh, what a landscape architect is, and some of your favorite projects that you've worked on. Sure. Well, um, as a landscape architect, you know, it's a profession where we design most of what you see in the public environment that is in a building. Um, so off, very often, obviously, the streetscapes and the parks and the gardens. Um, what's interesting uh, about where my career has gone and I think really about where the profession is headed 
is that I've really gotten much further into managing water and infrastructure through the application of ecological systems. Um, often that means things like green roofs and um, things like vegetated walls. Um, and then, as we've talked about today, things like rainwater harvesting and on-site water recycling. Mm -hmm. um, and how these things can really fully integrate with the landscape and the ecology um, of a particular site and, and really at larger scale um, how the ecology of an urban environment or even an entire city or region can really help to manage infrastructure and reduce impacts on infrastructure. And so that's a lot of what we're talking about here is how can we use these ecological applications to reduce the impacts of our activities on the infrastructure systems we're involved in. Sure. I mean, probably the, probably the most exciting example of that that I've been involved in, um, when I worked for a previous company a couple of years ago, um, I managed the design of what's now actually being called the largest green roof in the country um, in New York City over some of their infrastructure for drinking water. And this is basically a, a nine-acre uh, drinking water treatment facility that's mostly underground for security reasons in the Bronx. Uh -huh. And we ended up really managing um, about 80,000 gallons a day in excess water that was originally intended to go into New York's stormwater system, which is essentially a small stream. Uh -huh. And we were able to use that water to assist in heating and cooling the buildings um, as well as provide wetland habitat. And ultimately, we were able to store that water in ponds that actually were able to replace the security systems as far as physical barriers that were originally proposed to, pr to protect the treatment facility from attack, you know, from terrorist yeah. activity. And so, you know, we found like out <laughs> that a certain amount of water could replace, for example, a vertical barrier. And in the end, all that water provided a ton of habitat for the local ecology and, like I said, also helped to heat and cool the buildings. And uh, ultimately, a lot of that water also ended up going to the golf course on the <laughs> Wow. Please tell me that there are other cities calling you and beating down your door to replicate a system like that. Well, I would say that it's happening. Um, to, to say they're beating down our door would be uh, an overstatement. <laughs> but um, certainly we're busy. Well, that's good news. And I know I, a few weeks ago we talked to a, a green architect named Trung Lee. He and I met at the um, Schools of the 21st Century Symposium that uh, the Architectural Record magazine put on in San Diego back in uh, April or May. And he's done a lot of work in the city of Chicago, and evidently Mayor Daley is very into green roofs. In fact, he's he's put in some ordinances that any new buildings have to include green roofs. His idea is not only the, the water conservation aspect of it, but also to cool, kind of act like a, a heat island kind of effect, to cool the overall temperature of the entire city by doing this. So uh, have you talked to anybody in Chicago? It sounds like what you do well is a perfect match for what they're looking to do. Well, certainly. I mean, Chicago has been really a leader in the United States for green roofs um, and has more green roof area than any other city in North America. Um, certainly there are some very talented people um, in Chicago, and I'm familiar with some of them. There's a, a company called the Intrinsic Landscapes that does amazing work, and they've 
I think, probably put in more square footage than any other firm in the country. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say that we're moving into that market, but I would certainly say that um, we collaborate with people from Chicago and have certainly learned from them and, uh, you know, continue to have relationships with them. Very cool. uh, It's amazing what they've done there. Well, and we're going to be back with more in just a few moments. We'll be talking with Josiah Kane. We've got more Go Green Radio coming up right after these commercial breaks. Don't go away. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Hi. My name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. They say it's from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote. And then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Interstate Sportsman Talk radio show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news, talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join hosts Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're joined by Josiah Kane. If you're just joining us, don't close this web browser. Open up a new one and um, go to www.designecology.com and there you will find Josiah's uh, partners and what they do in terms of being landscape architects. And if you're not familiar with that term, basically it means that they are the folks who create the beautiful landscape in public spaces, like uh, Josiah was saying at the during the last segment, parks, roadways, um, landscapes around public buildings, and whatnot. Now, Josiah, I know that 
in your portfolio, you have done some work with schools. Um, tell us about, you know, how you treat landscaping around schools, maybe as a unique feature of what you do, or is it kind of the same as landscaping around any other public building? Well, there are similar, similarities and differences. Schools are great because really they're campuses, and when you work with a campus, you have much more ability to really control your impacts on site because you have more of a site to work with and there are more options and ways that you can sort of design your systems to work together. So from that standpoint, um, we really enjoy working on campuses when we can. Certainly, as you mentioned, we've done some big green roofs on schools and also some work with managing stormwater and rainwater and things like that. There's also an educational component, which is great. Um, We're finding increasingly that schools want to be part of the sustainability movement. They want to be doing green building, and and they want their campuses to perform, uh, partly because they can use that in their curriculum. And, you know, the the youth are very interested in these things, and so, so it sort of doubles as a way to sort of educate their students through the experience of the campus. Absolutely. And and I've seen that on many of the campuses that we work with um, in my nonprofit organization, the Go Green Initiative. If you want to check out that website, folks, it's www.gogreeninitiative.org. And we're the largest environmental education program in the world. We operate in all 50 states and in 14 countries around the world. And one of the things that I have seen many, many times on our Go Green Initiative school campuses um, in addition to some smart landscaping that is drought resistant and uh, you know very very uh, con- conservative when it comes to water use, we've also seen a lot of great school gardens. And as Josiah mentioned, those are areas where curriculum can be incorporated into children's interaction with the you know the live plants and bugs and insects and birds that you know create the ecology of a school garden. Josiah, give us a couple of examples of specific landscape projects that you've done on campuses that allow kids to interact with it and and use it as an educational tool? Well, you mentioned food, and mm-hmm. one of the funner projects, really, that I've worked on on a campus was uh, a school called San Domenico School, and that's in Marin County near San Rafael. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they do have an edible garden, and we designed an extension onto their uh, garden shed that actually provides a, an open-walled roof over an outdoor kitchen that's really designed to, to cook food out of their garden. And we also designed a chicken coop that goes along with that, and they have chickens now. And, um, wow. And we did some work with their, you know, with their food production systems, and they're using that, uh, that food on campus both um, in their cafeteria and in their curriculum, and just really a nice project overall. The other one I would mention really quick is College of Marin, also here. Um, There's two roofs on the new Fine Arts Building that just broke ground, and those green roofs are really habitat uh, comprised of all native plants that are from that site and um, really attracting species, especially butterflies and songbirds and hummingbirds um, that exist in the landscape, and they're going to put signage there so students can actually hang out on these roofs in native plant environment and learn the plants so that if they go for a hike on the weekend, they might actually know what they're looking at. That is so cool. I I remember once, um, I think this was back in 2005, every year the Go Green Initiative has an International Earth Summit 
where we pull people from all over the country and different parts of the world together, and we talk about the various elements of the Go Green initiative and how to implement it um, in schools and communities. And during that year, I believe it was 2005 or 2006, one of the speakers was from the National Audubon Society. And as we do every year at our Earth Summits, we took tours of Go Green Initiative schools in the city in which we held the summit. And one of the things that I found so fascinating about his remarks after we did that was that he said, I noticed that there were birds on every one of those campuses. And he said, that's a clear indication that that's a pretty healthy environment. When you see schools or other public spaces where there are no birds, it means that it's not healthy for them to be there, and that should be a pretty clear indicator that it's not healthy for human beings either. When you see a school campus that's nothing but concrete and no birds are there, that's not going to be a great place for kids any more than it is for the birds. And, and it's really interesting that you're talking about building these you know, beautiful and environmentally friendly gardens, but you know, it's not just about our enjoyment of the, you know, the, the species that come to, to hang around these spaces, but it's a clear indication that we're creating a healthy learning space for the students as well. Well, absolutely, and I think uh, to take that sort of one step further, um, we tend to forget that it is our ecology that enables our survival on this planet, and we can't continue to build urban environments that don't support that ecology and expect exterior landscapes to continue supporting us. Um, so when we talk about places like schools where we're managing them with public money and they're publicly owned in many cases, um, I think we have a responsibility to reintegrate those ecological systems that are our life support systems and to help our population understand that that's an integrated relationship that needs to continue in a healthy way. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I, I looked in your biography. It says that you graduated from the Harvard School of Design. What have you learned out in the field doing your work about going green, about being environmentally responsible that you weren't taught in the classroom? Well, I think I would say two things in particular. Um, one is that you really can't design a site without spending time on the site. And um, when you're sitting in a classroom, uh, there's seldom great opportunity for that. Um, but I just can't stress the importance of understanding the place and not just the form that's provided to you um, in reports and background information and CAD drawings. I think a second thing that I would say is cross-disciplinary um, interaction is totally critical to sustainability and good green design. So you really need this integrated design approach where the engineers, the architects, the landscape architects and ecologists are all working together and rolling up their sleeves and exchanging information. In many cases, I find that the disciplines don't understand each other's work well enough to provide some simple solutions that are available. And so it's really important that that communication happens. In your experience, is that happening? I mean, for instance, are you brought in to a project at the same time that the building architects are? Increasingly. I would say that it used to be that the ecology work was seen as sort of a window dressing. Yeah. So it, it, it was something that was added on. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, um, we're brought in actually to provide integration between the, the disciplines. And That's, so we'll, we'll, we'll integrate 
between an architect and a landscape architect to provide a green roof or between a landscape architect and a civil engineer to provide integrated water management on the site, um, things like that. That's fantastic. And, uh, Josiah, I hope that we can have you back on Go Green Radio to talk about more. I'm so intrigued by what you do and by your perspective. I, I just find it so inspiring. Folks, you really need to check out his website at www.designecology.com. Next week, we'll be back with more Go Green Radio and great guests, as always. That's a promise. Until then, go green, have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week with more Go Green Radio. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.